Hi, and welcome to Navigating Life as We Know It. I'm your host, Steve Johnson, and I'm here with my lovely wife and co-host, Carrie Johnson. Hello. And today we are talking about voting. It's a rather serious subject. There's been a number of laws passed throughout the country attempting to allegedly secure the vote, but in many cases it's made voting far more difficult for certain groups of people, and people with disabilities are one of them. So we're going to talk about a valid right to vote and how these laws may be impinging upon that and what can be done. And we do have some guests we're bringing in today to interview. Also have an audio clip from Texas Public Radio on the results of laws similar that were passed in Texas before their last primary and what it did to the turnout. So let's go into it and uh, we'll meet you at the end. Excellent. Welcome to Navigating Life as We Know It. I'm your host, Steve Johnson. Our podcast is dedicated to celebrating ability, embracing diversity, and living inclusively. But today, the topic is dedicated to voting rights. We have with us three guests. Brett Williams is the public policy analyst with the Michigan Development Disability Council. Welcome, Brett. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be here. Anna Dusbiber the Recreation Independent Living Manager with the Ann Arbor Center for Independent Living. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. Happy And to be also here. Rachel Previtt, Voter Engagement Specialist with Disability Rights Michigan. Thanks um, for having me. Thank you all for joining me today. This is kind of a, an opinion question to start out with, but does fraud exist in our election system? Well, Steve, I'm going to answer again by an opinion. There will always be people that will go to great lengths to achieve the desired outcomes that they want. Prefacing that, when we look at the term voter fraud, we really have to analyze what that really means. Was there ballots uh, cast in the 2020 election that were proven to be uh, fraudulent? Yes. But let's look at that number. There were over 5.5 million votes cast in Michigan in the 2020 election. Of those 5.5 million ballots cast, approximately 52 were deemed as uh, fraudulent ballots. That was by three individuals. So when we break those numbers down, that's roughly looking at one in 100,000 ballots possibly being fraudulent, but 0.6 in a million people casting a fraudulent ballot. So can you say that there was fraud? Yes, but in a very, very minute portion of the total ballots cast. As a matter of fact, there's probably never been a statewide election in any state held where there wasn't some degree of fraud but to what scope and how would it affect the outcome? Absolutely. And and when you look at the 5.5 million votes cast and 53 of them were um, deemed uh, fraudulent, that doesn't have any bearing in an outcome of an election. Statistically insignificant. Absolutely. When you look at 5.5 million votes cast in Michigan, that was the most votes cast in the past 60 years. 
So again, um, statistically very insignificant. So it could be said that uh, a lot more people voted than was anticipated by some individuals, and maybe that is disturbing. Too many people voted. You can never it's have too to many people. Yeah, you can never have too many people voting, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, that's that's what our constitutional rights grant us is the ability to cast a ballot for the person we want to represent us in either a local, state, or, or federal offices. And in my opinion, if we had 100% voter participation, that would be the number that would be a goal for us to achieve. Okay, and my next question, this is for anybody who wants to chip in here. I know that, Rachel, you work uh, with the voter rights specialist. Why aren't the petitions being used to enhance voter security? I mean, in Texas, they actually passed laws, and some other states are taking the legal course to do it. Uh, not this is an illegal course, but they're they're doing it through the legislature. Why are we using petitions in Michigan? I, I would say that there are multiple reasons. One is just that Michigan is a state where ballot initiatives are a popular way to to pass laws um, and to amend the constitution. We're kind of in step with California in the frequency that that we use them. In addition to that, specific to at least one of the petitions, there's speculation that there's sort of a, an aim to use a little known strategy with ballot initiatives, which is that if you get a substantial enough number of signatures on the petition, then the legislature can then pass that circumventing the ballot. And also in the process, um, it becomes veto proof. So it circumvents the, the governor's signature. So there's speculation about the intent of this, but it it's pretty common to see these kinds of issues brought to the ballot in Michigan. It's been a pretty frequent way to address civil rights issues and, and voting issues in particular. Now, hasn't the Michigan legislature passed or at least debated laws that, that are mirrored in this petition already? Um, that's a great question, Steve. And Michigan had a, a substantial number of bills that were introduced and some had worked their way through legislature. Um, last, to my knowledge, there were over 40 legislative initiatives that were introduced, and, and some did make it through the process and was sent to the governor. And yes, some of those bills were vetoed. And are they reflective of some of those bills? I would argue, and again, my opinion, yes, that they are reflective. Rachel, could you explain the 8% rule, how something can be passed through an initiative and then make it into law, having it being veto-proof from the governor? Um, Brett could probably do a slightly better job than I can, but my understanding is that um, if you can get signatures equivalent to 8% of the number of voters in the past election, then the legislature can take up that issue, um, the language that would have been on the ballot as legislation and debate it, consider it, and pass it as they would typical legislation. But because of the uh, demonstrated public support in the petition, it becomes veto proof. That's my understanding, but Brett is very much the policy guy. And policy guy, where does the 8% come from? That's 8% of what? It's 8% of the number of votes cast during the last gubernatorial election. So currently, that would be, if I remember correctly, uh, 340,047 votes uh, needed to, or excuse me, signatures on a petition to have a place before um, the voters in the upcoming election. Now, in order to have uh, that occur, the legislature, as, as Rachel had shared, um, does have an option to take that up within 40 days. 
And if the legislature does take up in 40 days, just as Rachel explained, is that um, if they vote on it and they pass it by through both chambers, then it is a veto-proof law and it becomes law on the books. If they don't take action uh, within 40 days, then it does go before the voters on the next um, uh, general election. Okay, so uh, if, I, I actually have a question about this since we're talking about it. Um, sure. Is is this the same for all ballot proposals, or is it specific to ballot proposals for proposed laws as opposed to constitutional amendments? Um, could you so hypothetically, can you have a ballot proposal on an, an off general election? Yes, I can't think of any substantial ones off the top of my head, Rachel. But no, um, what I, I'm I, asking is is for example, um, promote the vote is proposing a constitutional amendment. Right. Secure my vote is um, proposing changes in law, not specifically a constitutional amendment. Theoretically, could a constitutional amendment be passed through the legislature the same way that secure my vote can? My understanding is that that is true, except it has to be 10 percent of the vote in the last Mm -hmm. gubernatorial election. And it's still veto proof, which. If you look at it, it's kind of scary. It means either 92 or 90% of the voters are not considered that either 8 or 10% get to change the Constitution or enact a law. Is it possible for them, for people circulating this petition, to target the people who they know will sign that petition? In other words, go into those neighborhoods and get those signatures, regardless of folks in other parts of the state. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of practice for you know all petitions is a goal where there is an easier uh, a format to achieve the desired number of signatures on any. Um, you're going to densely populated areas. You, you go into some rural areas, depending on what the initiative is. Uh, once again, in my opinion, I think that when you have any entity select, uh, selecting to back any ballot initiative, is that they're going to want to get the best results for the money expelled. And I think it's pretty common for all ballot initiatives to take that approach because, I mean, the, the people who are gathering the signatures. Most of them are paid. There are some volunteers, absolutely. They're typically backed by somebody or some entity to have you know the costs absorbed so it's not out of pocket for the person gathering the signatures, you know, the printing of the ballot proposals, advertising, getting the people out there to collect them, sharing information via uh, social media, things of that nature, there's money involved. I mean, there's our cost and they want to get the best return for their investment. And it doesn't become law unless the legislator actually enforces that after they get the 10% for the amendment or the 8% in order to pass a law. But in either case, it's veto proof. If the legislature acts on it, correct. If the legislature does not act on it, then it does go on the ballot at the next general election. Okay, one more theoretical question here, and then we'll get into some specifics about the different initiatives. But let's say uh, Secure the Vote gets the needed signatures and is likely to be enacted by the uh, legislature. And let's say the um, the other two, which are constitutional amendments, get their 10%, and they go to the legislature. Now, they could be either voted down uh, or not voted, which means they go on the ballot next time, correct? Correct. Or they could they could approve them. So if one gets accepted to secure the vote, and the other one becomes a constitutional amendment 
at the next ballot, it basically gets rid of the first one. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. Um, so, Steve, I, I really don't know how that process would work. Um, I imagine that the constitutional amendment, again, this is only an opinion, I'm not a yeah. lawyer, that the constitutional amendment would override and take precedent over a bill that was just a petition-driven initiative, if you will. That would be my understanding as as well. I, I think the the sort of simplified idea, right, is that the Constitution says what can and can't be law in the state of Michigan. So if the Constitution says the things that are in the law that was passed are, are now not compatible with the Constitution, I believe um, that that would be, it would override that. Thank you. So let's get into the the, the meat and potatoes of these, these amendments. First one is secure my vote, the Michigan vote. Um, what are some of the uh, initiatives, an overview of that? In all honesty, Steve, uh, I would really want to refresh myself on these. I have a couple down here that I got from the internet that we can discuss, and this probably would jog the memory. It requires a voter ID for in-person voting and absentee ballot applications and eliminates an affidavit exemption uh, currently allowed for in-person voting without an ID. So in other words, people have to have a valid photo ID in order to vote. And it's not a matter of signing an exemption anymore. You have to go back and prove it. It says requires a partial social security number for voting uh, registration, uh, requires voters who don't present ID in person to present it within six days after the election for the vote to be counted, uh, bars unsolicited absentee ballot applications, which was something that came out because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. and bans outside funding for elections and restricts mail-in ballots and provides voters with hardships with free IDs funded by a $3 million state fund. Anna, what do you see as being some things there that might inhibit people with disabilities from voting? All of what you mentioned um, <laughs> present uh, um, major barriers, in my, in my opinion. Um, if we just consider the ID, needing an ID, um, someone with a disability may not um, have physical access to their ID and be able to present that um, in person um, in an easy way. Um, you know, they, they may need the support of someone else um, to, to facilitate that process. So I just see that being a huge barrier. Um, and then you had mentioned something along the lines of the initiative not accepting mail-in ballots. Um, I know from our most recent election, um, I was able to um, vote by absentee ballot, and that provided a lot of accessibility. Um, and I know that we our, our percentage of people with disabilities voting um, in these recent elections um, increased um, significantly. And I, I have to believe that a lot of it was because of the access to um, absentee ballot. And so having these barriers, these added barriers to accessing those methods is really, really concerning to me. 
Yes, it uh, does say that uh, you can vote absentee, but you've got to have the uh, proper valid uh, photo ID and there's some restrictions around that uh, mm -hmm. and getting it. Um, whereas last time around, we got the applications sent to us. We're not yeah. talking about ballots being sent out. We're talking about applications for ballots. Right. And this one yes. specifically prohibits that. No, As Anna I, said, there was a really significant uptick in um, voter turnout in the last election, and the uptick specific to disabled voters was even greater than um, the general increase. And I think that there's a strong argument, especially because the states that opened um, absentee voting significantly, the states that went to full absentee voting for all, the states that went to um, sending unsolicited uh, absentee registration, those are the states that saw the most significant increases. And it, it seems pretty clear that accessibility is accessibility, right? The the easier it is for you to, to get your ballot and get your um, vote cast, the more people are going to show up. And I think that that's really kind of um, a big part of, of the concern here is that even these issues that feel very general, that would affect all voters, um, are going to pose more significant barriers to people people with disabilities. Um, one example that comes to mind is the concern about not allowing in-kind donations. So in the research that I've done on this proposal, um, on the secure MI vote proposal, uh, the reaction from municipal clerks, from city and township clerks, has been pretty roundly against this, regardless of their partisan affiliation. Those are elected positions, so they typically have a party affiliation, but both both parties um, clerks have expressed concerns about not being able to take donations, which would include donations of space. Um, so if your polling place is a church, a community center, some sort of a nonprofit entity outside the government, that polling place would not necessarily be available to your, your clerk going forward. And what we see is that when there are fewer polling places, that cre creates less accessibility. It creates longer waits, which affect people with disabilities in terms of just their physical ability to sit around and wait, their resources. If you have an Uber driver waiting for you, or if you have caregivers who might have a shift change, uh, there are so many ways that something that seems very general, like increasing wait times by decreasing polling sites or complicating access to polling sites is going to affect people with disabilities disproportionately. And unfortunately, people with disabilities are represented um, disproportionately across other forms of marginalization. They experience higher rates of poverty. They experience greater issues with things like transportation. So um, the same way that these things will affect the general population, they'll affect people with disabilities more significantly. And I think especially the concern around um, having access to um, absentee ballots is, is just a huge area where we're concerned that this is a move that will disproportionately disenfranchise people with disabilities and that the conversation is much more focused on um, imagined fraud that we haven't seen significant evidence of despite all kinds of investigations and not on the people that we'd be disenfranchising. Um, it's it's going to take a lot of fraud to justify violating people's constitutional rights and I just really don't think that we're there. A couple of things going back on a comment that Anna made about some of this disability maybe not having immediate access to the the uh, photo ID. My son is in a wheelchair. Okay, he never goes out by himself, but if he was a wheelchair user that did have access to the community on his own, uh, they probably would be carrying, like my son, his ID in this backpack in inside of a little 
walla type structure um there's no way he can get to that by himself and my understanding is there's some restrictions on having someone help you vote possibly mm -hmm. So if you had someone going along with you, the people at the polling place aren't going to go through your personal stuff to get your ID. So that becomes an issue right there in that instance. It makes it harder. When I think about, okay, my son is in a wheelchair. I know what it's like to transport him. He has me to take him there. I also know how easy it is for me to just jump in a car and run to the store and pick up a gallon of milk and a couple of things and run some errands and come home. But anything with a person with a disability can become exponentially harder than that just because of the circumstances. So when you get down to some of these requirements, it's like putting up barriers that really are solving a problem that doesn't exist. Right. Absolutely. At least that's the perception we have. Now for mm -hmm. someone who wants this, uh, secure my vote, it does seem rational if you've been showing a photo ID all of your life to vote. And I have been, and I'm in Ottawa County, and I just take it for granted, bring the license, show it. It seems realistic to, to require people to have a photo ID. But even the logistics of getting those photo IDs out to people that, that don't have one or haven't had a, a use for one in the past could be very onerous. And that is going to keep some people from voting. Because I know that, you know, if you have to go through a lot of hoops to get something done on a regular basis, and people add more barriers in front of it, people are more likely to say, oh, heck, it's only one vote, it doesn't count anyway. Which by definition would be suppression, whether it was intended, that's the effect, it'll suppress the amount of votes being cast. I think you're really onto something there, Steve. And I think it's important you know, to acknowledge in this conversation that a lot of people who support these measures are doing so in good faith, right? Yes. They're people who just want secure elections. They've heard a lot of information that worries them. And unfortunately, disability rights are often an afterthought for people who that's not part of their day-to-day -day life. So it's, it's not even necessarily some kind of wanton disregard so much as just they're not thinking about ramifications that aren't obvious to them. And it's my hope that we can draw attention you know, to where these barriers can cause real problems for people who also have the right to vote and who just want to exercise that right. And Rachel, I wanted to touch base a little bit on the transportation issue with you as well. Um, I can't agree more. Uh, I live in a suburb of a rather large municipality, and we only have one transportation provider in the entire county. So let's just take an example that Steve shared about um, a person with a mobility device that's going to rely on that public transportation to take he or slash she to um, the, the polling place. In my particular area, it's virtually kitty corner across the township. So you would have to arrange transportation there. They would drop you off. You would wait in line to cast your ballot. Then you would have to call a transportation provider and have them come pick you up. So this person could take literally hours should they be required to show up in person and show their ID to cast a ballot. I, I think that's really important, Brett, and especially because, you know, a lot of rural voters, a lot of rural people with disabilities are in that or even worse positions. I um, worked for a direct care provider in Isabella County, and we depended on a door-to-door public transportation service. It was basically a dial ride and it wasn't necessarily reliable. They weren't always on time. Um, they, if they didn't show up, sometimes that just meant that the home had to adjust everyone's schedule to accommodate that they didn't show up. 
And to depend on systems like that is is very difficult for people. It's already a barrier to things like employment and community engagement. And it it would be a significant barrier to voting, especially because Mm -hmm. people can't necessarily predict how long they'll be at the polls. So you can get a ride there. But what happens if it takes two hours and then you have to call dial ride and they're not just going to come pick you up. It's not a taxi service. They're going to pick you up on a schedule according to what else they have availability for. And similarly, even in places where things like Uber and Lyft are available, Uber and Lyft don't tend to be the best when it comes to responding to disability needs. They don't often have the accommodations necessary to provide transportation with disabilities. They don't, because their drivers are not their employees, they don't provide them with training specific to assisting people with disabilities, to serving people with disabilities in a customer service sense. So those transportation barriers, I think, are another one of those things that it's easy to overlook if it's not a problem in your day-to-day life, but can be huge barriers that people with disabilities live with every day. And there are certainly places where even a door-to-door service would be a dream compared to what's available. And it's costly. It is costly. You have an Uber driver come and maybe wait for you. Oh, yes, that's very costly. And it comes with its own set of of complications. We received um, a, a complaint from an individual who showed up at the polls to vote and requested assistance from a poll worker to cast his ballot, which is his right. And the poll worker instructed him to have his driver help. But his driver was just the Uber driver that showed up. Um, that's not necessarily somebody yeah. that you know or have any relationship with. Right. I wouldn't necessarily want to put my ballot in the hands of someone I didn't know. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just a, a huge barrier that gets overlooked. When you create a barrier that is going to require somebody to expel money or expend money, I should say, to cast a ballot. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but to me, that's very reflective of a poll tax, which we've done away with, you know, 100 years ago. That can't make somebody pay to cast a ballot. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting that many people probably don't know this, but when you buy a newspaper, there's no sales tax on it because it's freedom of speech. And that would impinge on it. It's paying tax on the newspaper uh, is an issue. And, And voting is a right. And so if you're making people shell out money in order to vote, it is a poll tax. De facto, it is, you know, because it's a barrier. I got a question to ask you before I forget, because I jotted this down here. Are there any disabilities that would bar an individual from voting? I mean, legally. Legally? Yeah. Because of a disability, they're not allowed to vote. No. In the state of Michigan, specifically, I'm talking specifically about the state of Michigan, there is not currently any um, statutory limitation on voting on the basis of a disability. So a person with a disability can vote whether they live in the community, in a congregate setting, whether or not they have a legal guardian, um, they, they have that right. And Michigan is one of, I believe, 10 or 11 states where that's the case. And um, it's a really important thing for folks to know because unfortunately, a lot of people assume um, that people with disabilities aren't allowed to vote. And that creates a whole other barrier for people with obvious disabilities, whether it's having to work through paid caregivers or other professionals who are resistant to them voting or who question whether it's legal for them to vote, whether it's guardians who pose active or passive barriers to their access. Um, People with disabilities in Michigan have the right to vote regardless of their disability and um, regardless of the wishes of their guardian, their family members, their caregivers. Uh, And that's an area where Disability Rights Michigan can be of assistance if folks contact us. we can provide assistance in uh, getting ID 
and going through the process of registering to vote, even if a person's guardian or caregiver or the people they live with are resistant to that. So regardless of disability, even if it's an intellectual disability or a developmental disability or one acquired or a traumatic brain injury, they still have the right to vote. Yes, I think sir. a lot of people assume that they don't. And I just wanted to get that out. And unfortunately, in a lot of states, they don't. And in a lot of states, it's a much more complex process. We're very lucky that Michigan is a state where access to the ballot is, is at least on paper, um, a, a pretty broad thing. Yeah. So transportation and, and many aspects of voting is a, a large barrier. It's a barrier even if you're allowed to use other means of voting, but it's it's a huge barrier if the kid with the signature requirements. Anna, you work with a number of individuals as a specialist. Are there any other barriers that you might imagine a person could have? So getting to the drop box to drop off your um, your absentee ballot, you know, um, there there are questions about whether there's going to be some barriers with some um, restrictions on the time ranges of um, when those drop boxes are going to be available, um, and that thus impacting. Um, counting all the votes. Um, I hope I have that right. If somebody with a disability is going to be utilizing absentee ballot as their option, they should be able to carry that through completely and and be able to um, drop their drop their ballot into a box that is close to them. Um, but they going back to utilizing supports, they may need support getting that ballot to that drop box. Um, they may need transportation to drop it in the drop box themselves. Um, there's a whole host of factors. I know that sometimes individuals need help actually filling out the ballot and and putting it in the envelope. So um, there's lots of space for discussion around how we create the the most inclusive way for people to access their right to vote. And I think it's an individual decision on how someone votes, how someone moves through that process. But we need to have training um, for poll workers um, to be able to provide support uh, at the poll station um, in a variety of ways. I, I know that personally, when when I've um, engaged in the voting process, I've decided to go in person, and I've simply asked someone uh, to help me guide my um, card into the machine so that it didn't get caught up. And um, I had a lot of resistance in that. Um, I was right there, so I knew. Um, how, you know, that it was going to go in. Again, a lot of resistance. And those types of things really can change, again, with with training and support for our polling places. And so um, I think I think there's a whole host of barriers and areas where we can provide support for people with disabilities. I hope I answered your question. Absolutely, you did. And I think it's important to to note that the other two initiatives promote the vote 2022 and my right to vote, am I right to vote, both include that there should be a drop box for each 15,000. Otherwise, you could have one drop box in Detroit. Well, that makes it really difficult to get to that drop box. Very often that drop box is at 
city hall or somewhere that if, if that was convenient to the person, they would yeah. already be voting in person. Yeah. But eliminating um, drop boxes is a kind of an overt way to uh, make it more difficult to vote. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not even just eliminating them. It's, it's also like intentionally closing them before the actual poll places are closed, which then closes the gap for people with disabilities who are casting their votes in an absentee option um, Correct. And, and excluding those votes. And so that's, that's my concern. And if I'm not mistaken, Brett, maybe you can remember on this, Anna had alluded to getting the ballot to the drop box. You or I could not drive around and pick up five or six for people that are friends of ours and drop them in the drop box. Correct. Correct. We, we are not allowed to do that. Um, and that's true. Even if you're a paid caregiver or a, a family member, you know, I, I'm not supposed to take my husband's ballot and submit it for him either. Right. Um, and, and that creates real barriers for folks who will otherwise have to, you know, navigate the mail system, which I think we learned in the 2020 election can be its own um, set of barriers and even getting to a, a mailbox. I mean, if you're dependent on other folks to help you with transportation, um, and then on top of that, those folks may have their own agenda about you voting, even getting to the mailbox could be a significant barrier. Um, and, and those things, I, I think they really add up. I, I think that overall, what we see is a lot of seemingly very small barriers that are like bricks in a great big wall. Yes. And it's easy for people just to give up and say, well, it won't make that much difference if I don't vote, but it's just gotten way, way too complicated. There's a lot of moving parts in this process, and I, I just don't want to do it. And I think even in a good year pre-pandemic, uh, that was what discouraged a lot of people with disabilities from voting. It's just a lot of work. It's just mm -hmm. too much work. Absolutely. And we've, we've made so much momentum with getting um, the percentage of people with disabilities and the number of voters up um, that I would hate to to see that decrease as a result of these, these efforts. Let me just ask the question and get your reactions to this, the three of you. Is the net effect of these proposals for Secure My Vote likely to increase or decrease the number of ballots cast, especially within the disability community? That's a tough one. <laughs> Well, <laughs> um, because it, it is speculation. And part of, of what I've found in researching these proposals is that there's even some debate over what the actual effects of the proposals would be, um, particularly with Secure MI Vote. You have municipal clerks and others saying that um, barriers will be presented, that the people who are advancing the petitions are saying those barriers will not exist. So it's difficult to predict. Um, I think what we can say that isn't specific to secure my vote is that anytime we see um, limited access to um, absentee voting, anytime we see limited access to the necessary supports, um, and anytime we see requirements that are sort of solutions in search of a problem, like things like voter ID at the polls, um, I, I think that those things are always going to reduce turnout. Um, as Anna alluded to, we saw this huge increase in turnout in the most recent federal election. And it would be a shame to lose that um, by re retracting the things that we believe actually fed that um, increase in turnout. There are two other ballot initiatives Michigan voters are being asked to sign. 
One of them is promote the vote. And the second one is an amendment to the Constitution called Michigan's Right to Vote. Before we get to discuss those, we're going to have a little listen to an audio clip from NPR station KUT and Ashley Lopez out of Texas, because they had some legislation passed before the last primary election that may show us what could possibly happen in Michigan as a result of the Secure My Vote initiative. In this audio clip, Ashley Lopez investigates some of the results from changes in Texas law regarding the Texas legislature's attempts to secure the vote. Thousands of Texas voters had their mail-in ballots rejected in this month's primary. An Associated Press analysis out today put the number at nearly 23,000 across the vast majority of Texas. The rejections followed the state's new Republican-backed voting law. That law created new ID requirements that local election officials say tripped up many eligible voters. Ashley Lopez of member station KUT in Austin reports. Chris Davis is the elections administrator in Williamson County, a historically Republican county north of Austin that's been turning blue in the past few years. During this last election, his office rejected more than 11 percent of returned mail ballots. This is a stark increase compared to most years when rejection rates are in the low single digits. He says it's easy to spot the culprit behind these high rates. The most common reason in my county's case and talking to my colleagues in other counties was the lack of proper identification numbers or ID number issues uh, with that ballot. Under the new law, voters have to provide a partial social security number or driver's license number on their mail ballot application, as well as the return envelope. And the ID they provide has to match their registration record. Davis says this new requirement tripped up an unprecedented number of voters. He and his staff helped many of them fix their ballot in time, but... So many of those folks didn't have a chance, either because there wasn't enough time, because they had given up. And we encountered some folks that had given up and said, forget it, I, I have too many other things going on in my life. Besides some issues with matching ID numbers, there was a huge issue with voters flat out missing the ID portion of their ballot's return envelope. Madeline Sanifer, a voter in her 70s living in the Rio Grande Valley, was among those voters. I put my ballot in the ballot envelope. I put the ballot envelope into the carrier envelope. And I looked for a place where I could write down my Texas driver's license. And I couldn't find it anywhere. I couldn't find a place anywhere. Turns out that section was under the envelope flap. Eventually, she was able to submit some paperwork that allowed her ballot to be counted. But thousands of voters in Texas didn't fix their ballot in time. These are more than enough votes to swing state and local elections. We are talking about a number of votes that is incredibly troubling that's Hani Mirza with the Texas Civil Rights Project. In Harris County, the state's most populous county, officials said they rejected a whopping 19 percent of the ballots they received, almost 7,000 ballots in total. During the primary election in 2018, the county had rejected only 135 mail ballots. Mirza says the high ballot rejection rates should raise questions about whether Texas's primary even counts as a Democratic election. You cannot throw out that many ballots based on a technicality that was part of a very convoluted process and say 
that the election was democratic. Voting groups say those most affected by these changes were older and disabled people. Grace Shemaine with the League of Women Voters in Texas says the law made things difficult for people already used to voting a certain way. It created havoc where you didn't have havoc before. People were used to voting by mail and now it has become a hurdle. Shemaine says her group is going to come up with some advice for state and local officials on how to better communicate new ID rules to voters. And the Texas Secretary of State's office says it's planning to step up voter education efforts ahead of the general election in November. From PR News, I'm Ashley Lopez in Austin. So, Brett, based upon that interview with Texas Public Radio, 23,000 votes across the state of Texas were discredited, thrown out because of a lack of ID issue, whether it was a driver's license issue or whatever, they, they just threw them out. Now, what they have in terms of law in Texas isn't exactly the same as what's proposed in Michigan, uh, but some of them have seemed to have a similar intent in terms of uh, guaranteeing signatures, mm-hmm. and, and that's all ID issues. So my question is, since that was, they said a plenty, that 23,000 across the state of Texas and 7,000 in the, the most populous county, uh, which is Harris County, could that happen in Michigan? It could happen anywhere, in my opinion, um, because whenever there is an additional obstacle or hurdle placed before somebody trying to cast a ballot that could run very detrimental to the number of ballots that are being accepted. Um, for instance, if you have, um, let's just say that we have a person that ages over the years. If, if they have a voter signature identification that, you know, with zero variances, I'm just use this for an example with zero variances, my signature won't match my signature that's on file from, from eight years ago because my signature has changed a little bit. So I, I, in my opinion, I think that anytime you have additional levels to, for lack of better term, Steve, additional levels to scrutinize a ballot, you run the risk of disenfranchising that many more voters. We have people with disabilities, uh, a lot of them use electronic signatures and or stamps. Um, Some of the um, um, things I've seen across the country as far as initiatives um, would basically not allow a person to use a stamp signature. So let's just take somebody, for instance, who use a a stamp uh, due to limitations of the ability to hold a pen or to write consistently across all spans. I'm that person, Steve. My signature varies from time to time. And if you look at a signature verification on the application to provide me with an absentee ballot that doesn't match what I have on voter file, even though the address is correct, even though my zip code's correct, even though I haven't moved out of my house in 26 years, all that's maintained a constant. If that portion prevents me from casting an absentee ballot, again, that, that's an obstacle that is, in my opinion, um, undue. It's, it's, I am who I am. 
And again, that's disenfranchising. Uh, in Michigan, we have the ability to sign an affidavit to that to a test of who you are. And in Michigan, that has been very, very successful. And I am very, very cautious to employ a level of obstacles in front of a, any voter, whether it be for a primary election, general election, local county election, whatever the case would be. It should be a democratic process. Everybody who is um, allowed to vote under state and federal law should be able to cast that ballot without any obstacles. And just to back up what you said, depending on how uh, many things are on my plate on a particular day and how how much anxiety I have, that'll change the way I sign. I mean, when when I sign one of those electronic things at a store, you can barely read it. And I wouldn't be able to read my own signature when I, when I take my time, which I usually do for something official, it's, it's much nicer penmanship. So I think a lot of people can relate to that. And something else that was mentioned in that, that audio clip that I think is really important when life is difficult enough for someone with a disability to navigate through transportation and everything else, when you add additional significant barriers to the process, people quite often will just say, I'll just skip it. You know, what the heck? It's really only one vote. But if 20,000 people say that, it's 20,000 votes is what it amounts to. And like back in Harris County, the proof in the pudding, they said in 2018, they had 135 ballots rejected due to uh, ID issues. Now they had a little bit less than 7,000 rejected uh, four years later. Um, that is a rather significant jump. Yeah. And to me, that is a huge red flag. <laughs> I could understand if something was put into place and you saw a variance because anytime the rules change, you would expect a variance, but we have to examine what would the acceptable variance be. Is it acceptable variance, you know, literally, 800 to a thousand percent difference out are you know yeah <laughs> um you know if it was you know 10 percent variance okay we, we may have to look at that 10 percent I, I i once again steve i'm just supporting uh my previous position of we have to be cautious on over restricting access to voting and we are encroaching on that level, if not surpassing it and jumping way over the finish line on it. In Michigan, there at one point, and I, and I haven't kept track of it, at one point we had 39 bills introduced in um, a Michigan legislature that would impact a person's ability to cast a ballot. And like has been said by several different people and one of the folks on this uh, podcast, uh, it looks like it's a um, basically a solution in search of a problem because the actual reported and verified incidence of voter fraud has been extremely small in Michigan and uh, very small throughout the United States is uh, was said recently by William Barr, you know, on one of these mm -hmm. uh, January 9th uh, testimonies, he said that uh, it was insignificant. Any voter fraud that may have occurred was not enough to affect any election. Uh, but the reaction to it is going to possibly disenfranchise many, many people in the disability community, the elderly, and some minorities too. 
Well, Steve, let's just do a, a quick comparison. And I'm, I'm relying on my aged memory. So if the numbers vary slightly, please forgive me. Um, if I remember correctly, in Michigan, there were a total of three individuals with a collective total of 55 fraudulent ballots. Yes, I remember hearing that. So now we have close to 7,001 county being discarded. I, I, I'm, I'm very, very cautious to make any assumptions that there is immense amount of voter fraud out there that's occurring deliberately. But when you have a, a single county discarding almost 7,000 votes, could that be some sort of a voter suppression? The effect would be, yes. Absolutely. And, and I, I do believe that many people signing these petitions are doing so with good intent because they're not looking at it through the lens of disability. Or they're not looking at it through the lens of, of elderly or, or some minority folks that have more challenges to get to get to the poll and, and maybe don't have the right idea at that particular time, but are willing to sign an affidavit. Again, mm-hmm. in the absence of massive amounts of vote fraud that that, that is apparent, uh, this is definitely a solution in search of a problem. I will not question for many people the intent of the laws, but the effect of it is devastating. And that should cause people to take a look at it and reevaluate it. Well, well Steve, I, I might challenge you just in, in, in not in an aggressive fashion, but when you mentioned that it may not be intentional, when you have any particular political body who is strongly in favor of a way to change the outcomes of an elections to me that would be intentional okay i'll correct myself i didn't say that the cause oh. of this was not intentional okay i think many people many people that supported i was i was approached with a petition to secure the vote and they mm-hmm. said basically we feel that everybody should have an id to prove who they are well that sounds innocuous doesn't it yes but the effect is devastating in terms of the outcome. And I do believe, especially when you get 26 states with a virtually identical legislation, that that would give some reason for the reasonable person to figure there's a cause and effect that that is so. And that perhaps there's some strategy behind that, especially when you come down to close elections. Yeah, I'm going to touch base a little bit about what you said about, you know, people getting the attitude of, you know, look, my ballot was um, cast aside. It's only one vote. You know, it's not going to make a difference. We have to keep in mind that when you look at any electoral process, there are countless elections that come down to one, two, three votes. Yeah. I remember back in, in, the, in the 2020 election where there was uh, county officials who had to flip a quarter to see who won because the votes were identical. After a recount, they were identical. So that one vote can and many times does make a huge difference in the outcome of an election. So anytime a single ballot or up to 7,000 ballots get tossed, 
that's going to change the outcome or has the potential to change the outcome. And again, that begs the question that if this um, level of scrutiny, does that institute the need for stringent review to see if that does not disenfranchising a vast amount of voters? I don't, I don't know how they're going to handle that. Yeah, nor, nor do I. I, I. I would, I would have to look at it. You know, being in again, I'm not a lawyer, Steve. Um, I, I don't dispense legal advice. I never studied law, okay. but just common sense to me. If you are infringing on somebody's constitutional right to vote, that would be a federal issue. Whether it is at a local, state, or national level, if somebody infringes on your constitutional right to cast a ballot, that needs to be looked at. Again, that's opinion by Brett, OBB. Well, I'll second that opinion. So where we're at right now is the uh, the June 1st deadline for turning in these uh, petitions to change the vote rules is passed. And uh, actually, Secure the Vote did not turn their signatures in. Correct. I'm not sure about the others. Did you have any update on that? Promote the vote? Or? Um, well, there's some constitutional amendments that are going to be um, still out there. They have till I believe, July 11th to submit their right. uh, signatures. I think we need to examine, Steve, why some of the petitions, and whether I'm for them against them, that's completely irrelevant. Yeah. Why some of the petitions have voluntarily, in some cases, not submitted their petitions. There has been a, an enormous amount of scrutiny in the state of Michigan regarding um, the collection of signatures on petitions to be uh, for certain public offices. Um, there has been an estimated 67, 68,000 fraudulent signatures that impacted half of our um, gubernatorial uh, candidate slate. Mm-hmm. Some of the petition circulators, and there's a list of them that turned in literally thousand plus fraudulent signatures. So when we look at Michigan's process, especially that something that has one political backing over the other. And in Michigan is kind of a unique state, Steve, because in Michigan, if a ballot proposal gathers enough signatures, the legislature can act upon that without putting it on a ballot. They have 40 days once the signatures are validated to either accept it, run it through the legislature. And, and again, if it's a partisan issue, um, the controlling party would, would vote it up or vote it down. And that would be it. It is not able to be vetoed by the governor if it passes. So at that point, if they voted in, it's, it's law. So some of the petitions are doing something, and I think strategically it, it may be um, advantageous to look at. But again, I'm, I'm, whether I'm for it or against it, it's completely irrelevant. But some petitions, signatures say, look, we're going to continue to collect signatures. Now, there is a, a window, and, and they have to stay within that window of time so hypothetically, some of the earlier signatures may be uh, uh, stricken from the final petitions being submitted, but they still submit it to the um, Bureau of Elections and the Board of Canvassers for certification. Should that process transpire, 
then the legislature can still take it up, even though it won't make the ballot because we've passed that deadline. But on the other hand of that, Steve, I didn't see anywhere in statute that the Bureau of Elections and the Board of Canvassers have to certify that at any given time. So what does that mean in just a shortened uh, explanation? If they don't file on the deadline and they continue to keep gathering signatures, they can submit them past the deadline. They can be um, uh, examined through the process of, of the Bureau of Elections and the Board of Canvassers. Um, certified that you have X amount of valid uh, signatures presented for the, before the legislature and they can act on it or not act on it. If they don't act on it, it will go into the next general election. 2024. 2024, correct. Yep. So if it's submitted, then it'll go into the 2024 ballot. So it is a strategic move, um, you know, and we all know that in two years, climates change, um, feelings and thoughts change over a couple of years. So I can understand why some of the some of them are, are doing it that way, especially when you have, you know, the, the unfortunate results of petition uh, signature gatherers who, for lack of better term, Steve, and I'm I, I don't want to. You know, to, to I think the word anybody. fraud applies. <laughs> yeah, it could. Yeah. Um, um, but again, when there's 60 plus thousand signatures challenged because they looked at repetitive writing styles, they looked at towns that weren't spelled correctly, names that weren't spelled correctly. When he looked at two different candidates from two different areas, but all the signatures matched. <laughs> Right. <laughs> there's a there, there's a challenge. There's there's a possibility that there's, uh, this wasn't done by the book. So it, it also points out to perhaps uh, stupid criminals. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, it, evidence all over the place. <laughs> well, you, you know, there is a report um, by the, the Bureau of Elections that I'm referring to. Um, so. I'm, you know, th that's where I've gathered some of my information and, and cr you know, created against some of my opinion that, you know, people can go on and look at, at, at how, how the ballots and, and the petitions are circulated, how signatures are gathered, and also how they're scrutinized. So it's not just a, you know, well, this doesn't look right and you toss it aside. No, there's, there's a process that goes through. Mm -hmm. So I, I can see, you know, erring to the side of caution on some of the petitions. And I can see where, you know, if they think that they have a better chance in 2024, well, so be it. Continue to gather. Now, the, the one that's still out there in terms of changing the Constitution, uh, one of them is, uh, am I voting the Michigan Voting Rights Amendment, which yep. needs 425,059 signatures. And we don't know what the current status that is, but that has several more weeks yet before it has to be turned in. That would theoretically neutralize uh, the other attempts to uh, affect the law, because if it was to um, make its way onto the 2022 ballot, and then it has to be voted for by the general population, but if it, mm -hmm. it's passed then, then we have on the Constitution, um, in the Constitution, uh, the rights to vote that will uh, negate these other attempts to to suppress the vote. Yeah, 
First, the number. Um, that is very true. To change the Michigan Constitution, you have to have 10% of the number of ten percent of the number of people who cast a ballot for the governor in the previous election. So as you said, it was 400,000 400, and some odd changes. So basically about 4 million people and change voted for the governor um, or voted in the gubernatorial election in Michigan. I had an article here. I'm just trying to dig through my papers on my desk um, that if I remember correctly, they were well on our way to secure the, the number of votes. You know, where it stands, basically, according to, to Bridge Magazine, um, which was, uh, was updated um, June 7th, um, collecting they're still in the process of collecting signatures, and the Board of Canvassers has approved the petition's revised format and summary. So there's also a limitation on how many words you can have on, on the petition, which is, is 100. So even though you may be changing um, a substantial portion of Michigan law, you are limited to ex the explanation of 100 words. And in the balance of our podcast, we talk about the provisions of that particular uh, proposed amendment mm -hmm. that it gets back to being able to sign an affidavit to identify who you are. So it, it basically takes the current practices and codifies it in the Constitution. And if anybody wants to sign on to that, they can go online under. I have it listed as MI right to vote. MI right to vote. And yep. actually you, uh, you can click on one of the buttons in the top and have a petition sent to you for 10 signatures. And then just make sure that you're talking to people who live in your County and are registered voters to sign that petition and then return it. And that's one way you can, um, you can order, you, you can have a signing party. Okay. You get people that are like-minded to do that. It certainly would help them out. Uh, and if uh, hundreds of, if not thousands of people did that, it would certainly help them get to that 425,000 of valid signatures uh, for that amendment. So there's something we can do here. Yeah. And, and reading on the, uh, the level of that particular petition, again, I'm not going to uh, take a position one way or the other. That's up to yeah. the, our listeners to determine, sure. you know, how they feel on a particular item, but, you know, under the 39 bill package, um, that was introduced, um, right after the, 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 um, the 2020 election and, and this legislative session, which was hundred first, some of the issues there on this would, really counteract some of the aggressive voter suppression laws that are trying to be passed. And one thing that I'm just going to touch base a little bit on this, on this one item under the, the, my right to vote, there, there was a provision that, that require the legislature to fund elections, which kind of sounds like, well, they're supposed to do that. Well, well, technically, yes, they are. However, where there is, some education to, to share in this under some federal statutes. One is called help America vote act. The state of Michigan receives roughly 12 million and change. If I remember correctly, uh, like $12.5 million from the federal government to help people with disabilities access polls to make them more accessible for seniors to, to help, with diverting some of the costs of local municipalities to make things accessible, to make sure that people have the ability to enter the polling station, to cast a ballot, to 
if there's additional costs for curbside voting, which is you know legal in many, many areas, in the state of Michigan is one of them, that if a person with a disability needs to vote curbside, then it's up to the polling place to make sure that that person is accommodated. So it helps with things of that nature. Um, voter education, things like that. So basically what I'm saying is if this is signed into law, that the legislature can't just kick that money back to the feds and say, we're not going to spend it here and try to help our, our, our elderly and disabled people cast a ballot. They would have to accept those funds and utilize them for their purposes. So again, when you look at um, access for a person with a disability, that is critical. Disabilities is the fastest growing population in the world. And there's a rumor going around, Steve, that people are getting older. I, I know it doesn't impact me. Um, I have but, evidence that's in the mirror every morning. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to use one of those uh, distorting mirrors that I, I look great yeah, all right. the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, we are getting older. And as, as, as people, as citizens, as um, the communities age, there's going to be a greater need for accommodations. And I can't imagine, you know, what I'm going to be going through, you know, 20, 25 years from now. And people really have to look, as you would say, look in the mirror because it will impact them as well. And the easier we can make physical entrances and the easier we can make the, or allow for the ability for somebody to cast a ballot. If somebody is homebound, make it an absentee ballot extremely accessible for them for people that are blind have screen readers available on absentee ballots um possibly even online you know we don't have that ability yet to cast a ballot online but there, there are many things that the help america vote act can help fund to make it accessible for all people to cast a ballot in the state of michigan that would be the ideal that's what democracy is about Yes, it is. My, myself, I, I personally go to the polling station. That's my choice. If I didn't want to go to the polling station, it also should be my choice that at, at my disposal, if I want one, or if I was mailed one, an absentee ballot, fill it out, mail it back. You know, it's interesting. In the 2020 election, I initially petitioned for a ballot to be sent to me, and it was. Mm-hmm. And that day, without thinking about the consequences, I decided, you know what, I, I feel better about going out and voting anyway. So I went there and they said, oh, you already have a ballot. So they are tracking this. I mean, mm-hmm. People who think that's this kind of uh, slipshod, no, they know exactly who has a ballot and who doesn't. So I went home and got the ballot and brought it back and, and used that one. Um, it is being tracked. It is being tracked. And Steve, you're absolutely right, because if you, I mean, it is against the law to cast more than one one ballot. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. and you want to avoid spoiling a ballot if possible, because it does create some uh, confusion and, and some extra work for uh, county clerks and things of this nature. But I think you touched on a, on a critical component here, Steve, is that you were able to do a couple different things. One, sign a, sign a document saying that you'll discard or destroy the other ballot. And that this is is the ballot that you're casting, but let's look at the area where I live. I live in an area that only has one public transportation provider. Uh, you have to call ahead 
in advance to schedule a ride. It is very affordable for most. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give the provider that. But if I had a mail-in ballot and I use this mode of transportation to, I decided to go to the polls. If they eliminate that option for me to sign a document saying I'll discard the other ballot and force me to go home, there's a good likelihood I won't be back to cast that ballot. Because again, one transportation provider and you have to dial, you know, call ahead to, to arrange transportation. They're not going to sit and wait, you know, take you back home, get the other ballot, come back to the polling station. And in my case, it's literally kitty corner across the township to cast that ballot there in one corner and I'm another far corner. And again, it's cost you something to vote. Yes. And anytime you have a cost to vote, can it be considered a polling tax? Again, I'm not a lawyer. But it always made me scratch my head. If I have to pay something to cast a ballot, I would argue that that's a point tax of some sort. If it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, makes you think. <laughs> The next one is promote the vote 2022. And the provisions on this that I have on my cheat sheet here is allows nine days of early voting, uh, publicly subsidized absentee ballots and tracking systems for the ballot location are allowed. Um, it continues to allow voters to sign an affidavit attesting to their identity rather than a state ID. It allows public sources and charities to fund local elections, which I guess Samayana had mentioned I hadn't thought about before. If the election is going to be held, a ballot spot is a church, a polling place, uh, the, the secure my vote would disallow that possibility. Even if that's the best uh, location in the community and the accessible one, they can't do it just because of that provision. And so, that's something that's especially burdensome, potentially. I mean, I, again, I'm speaking based on what I've, I've read clerks say about this, because I defer to the experts, the people okay. whose job it actually is to carry off an election. Um, that's going to potentially disproportionately affect people in urban communities that are strapped for funds and in rural communities that are both strapped for funds and don't have that many options for accessible large locations. Um one of the provisions, and this seems to be contested, but the claims that that some clerks have made is that this this um, requirement to not take donations would potentially come in the form of municipalities having to pay market price for space, which would be tens of thousands, if not in urban areas, hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxpayer money going into elections that wasn't necessary before. So a, a, a church volunteering to let that space be used either for a discount or for free is disallowed. That is the understanding that, that yes. clerks have, have given me, yes. Brett, did you have a comment? Yeah, I'd like to add just a little bit to that. Uh, Rachel brought up a very, very good point regarding the cost involved and, in you know, regarding, you know, who pays that expenditure. It doesn't come from a state coffer at that point. It would come from the municipality, the local coffers. So when you look at, you know, what, you know, I live in a small township. Uh, when you look at the cost burdens that might come into that, I don't know if our township could support that. In the past, I voted at churches quite frequently. 
in the places I've lived, and I've lived in three different states, um, that is not uncommon at all. Um, it would be a shame to see that um, if that's the best place and the most accessible place uh, to make that illegal would be a huge burden financially and materially just getting to the polling place. It could also potentially create a lot of confusion and chaos in the election that follows. Um, a lot of people, especially, you know, if you've lived in the same place for years or decades, you generally know where your polling place is, especially right. if you're in a smaller town that doesn't tend to change very much there could be a lot of confusion that comes out of just that sort of upheaval of where people vote um, that, that would be really unfortunate. I mean, we saw in the most recent election, um, the city of Detroit struggled to find enough appropriate polling spaces and they had to change some polling spaces and it created confusion. And then, of course, that confusion then fuels sort of larger uh, drama <laughs> about what's going on with the election. And I think anytime that we're doing something that makes it more confusing or less clear where a person needs to be um, to vote, that's that's problematic. They're probably less likely to vote because they're at, again, that's another set of barriers. Where do I go to vote? How is this voting process going to work if I can't find out where to go? Absolutely. Um, and I think it's important to remember that people with disabilities, even people with invisible disabilities, have often been socialized to not be a bother, to not be an inconvenience, to not ask for anything extra. And unfortunately, what that's going to result in in a lot of cases is if you go to a polling place and it's not the right polling place, or if you go and the poll worker um, fights you on ID or some other issue, you might just give up. And, and that's Absolutely. really unfortunate. I think what Anna said about um, poll worker training is so important. Most of the issues that we hear about go back to poll worker training. And unfortunately, that's just a matter of, again, resources. You know, a clerk has to have the time and the money to train those people. Having um, reliable uh, poll workers, obviously with the pandemic, that caused some upheaval. And it can it can really hinge on one poll worker, um, whether or not a person votes and continues to vote. So yeah, I think the, these are all really important, sort of, like I said, small barriers that add up to big barriers. And I have no doubt that if someone shows up to vote where they voted for the last 20 years and on that day, there is no signs out there for a polling place, they may just totally give up at that point. It's very discouraging. Let's look at it again from a perspective of somebody using public transportation. Oh my gosh, yes. They, they, they booked a ride from point A to point B, not point A to point B, C, or D. Yeah, no add-ons and dial ride. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. So, you know, and, and that just, and again, I'm going to kind of just, um, expand this view a little bit. It doesn't just impact the person with a disability. It also impacts many seniors as well. And when we look at the population of Michigan, we are quickly aging. Uh, we're going to have more seniors in the, um, in, in the future than we will have people under 55. So we have to, when we look at these, we have to look at not only what's happening now, What's going to happen, you know, four, eight, 12 years from now? Now, there happens to be an expert in our call right now for that, and that is me. I'm a middle-aged <laughs> senior, okay? <laughs> and I know that aging can be, in many cases, a form of progressive disability because there's things I can't do now that I could do five years ago or three years ago that has become a little bit more physically challenging. And so everything we're talking about does affect the senior population also. I think it's really important to remember um, in all of these discussions that disability is not a static 
thing. Uh, we who are able-bodied are able-bodied by virtue of luck, and that could change. And inevitably, we all age. Um, so if we're lucky enough to make it that long, we pretty much all end up needing these kinds of accommodations and assistance. And it's unfortunate that this is an afterthought because very often when people reach that point in their own lives, they're surprised to find that it's an afterthought for everyone else too. And they're not necessarily getting the help that they need. So I, I think disability issues are, are general population issues. And, and it's really important that we remember um, that accessibility isn't just you know folks who use wheelchairs or people who have de developmental disabilities. It's really a matter of helping everyone and being prepared to help everyone. To broaden that a little bit, it also affects a single mom with three kids and two jobs. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the overlap of what affects people living in poverty and what affects people with disabilities is very significant. And a lot of that is because the overlap of those populations is very significant. If you're dependent on social security or if you can only work part time because of your disability or there are limits to your income, those are all things that are going to make those hardships very significant. If I take the bus and end up in the wrong place, I can afford by the grace of my current situation to get on another bus. Some people can't necessarily do that. Some people can't afford to take the Uber from point B to point C. And, and that's a huge, huge burden that is invisible a lot of the yes. time. And I'm sorry, I interrupted you there. Um, I think just going off of what um, Rachel is saying, if we think about accessibility as wide net as possible, um, it, it's really beneficial to everyone, right? Like if we think about breaking down all these barriers, it it really provides opportunity for everyone to vote, regardless of their particular um, challenge, whether it's um, acquired disability or, or aging or invisible disability. Um, it's, it's really um, creating an opportunity for everyone to share their voice. One of the things we've learned in the last couple of years is that a lot of the things that people with disabilities have been asking for for a long time were both possible and beneficial to everyone. What we learned yeah. from COVID is that absentee ballots are going to get people to vote, not just people with disabilities. And, you know, things like being able to do this remotely, that's something that a lot of employers wouldn't have even considered in the past. And now it's a given. Um, right. We're, we're definitely seeing, I mean, it's very common for things to start out as assistive technology and then become just a part of the culture, whether it's Snuggies or, you know, whatever kind of, of thing that we take for granted. You know, the big thing right now is seems to be hands-free shoes. I keep seeing ads for hands-free shoes. And it's like, oh, well, wouldn't it be nice if that was the standard before? Yeah. That's such a great accessibility thing. So I, I think that, yeah, any any time that we're expanding accessibility for people with disabilities, it does benefit everyone. That reminds me of a quote I heard, and I, I have to paraphrase it, and I can't give the proper uh, credit for it, but uh, for for a person with uh, a neurotypical individual, technology makes life easier. For a person with a disability, it makes life possible. And I think it's important to realize that some of these technologies are critically important. That it might just make it more convenient for someone who has uh, neurotypical, but it actually makes things more possible. And if there's anything that gets in the way of doing that and that makes things more difficult, it's going to suppress any activity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what's been just shared really amplifies uh, my opinion that we should look towards getting everybody to vote, not just limiting access to the polls. 
and making it more stringent to prove who you are. Right. But we should look at towards that we have 100% voter turnout and that everybody has exercised their right, whether it be absentee ballot or they want to go to the polls in person. Mm-hmm. It would certainly 100%. be easier to track fraud, right? If, if we knew everyone <laughs> voted, those numbers would be clear. <laughs> Well, I think even if we had the most secure possible election, even if uh, uh, my right to my uh, uh, secure the vote were to pass, there'd probably still be the same percentage of fraud. Um, yeah, regardless. I think we're probably pretty close happen. to just the, the baseline. <laughs> yeah, you're always going to have people trying to do something nefarious. Let's let's face it, that's just part of the game. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to touch on on what you said about technology because one thing um, I talk about when I I do outreach and talk about voter assist terminals, which are the accessible um, devices for voting, um, voter assist terminals. If people were offered the opportunity to use them, if people who didn't have disabilities or didn't need those accommodations um, requested to use them, they might find that they're actually a lot more. Um, comfortable, and it's a lot easier to vote using a voter assist terminal. They have um, safeguards to not spoil your ballot. It's a much more interactive multimedia experience. If you're somebody who processes better auditorily, you can do it that way. If you're somebody who processes better visually, you can do it that way. Um, I I think that one of the things that, that we always encourage, and we encourage our staff here at Disability Rights Michigan to do, is whether or not you need to use the voter assist terminal, feel free to ask. It helps remind poll workers that it's out there. It helps you get familiar with what's available. And it also just kind of normalizes what ideally will probably one day be the standard, which is that we need to have universal accessible voting for everyone. And the only way to do that is going to be for people who don't need it to also care about it. Rachel, could you explain what a voter assisted terminal is? I can try. (laughs) Um, So in Michigan, um, we contract with three different manufacturers on voter assist terminals. So which voter assist terminal your municipality uses may not be the same as the next municipality over. This is something that you can always contact your clerk's office about and they should be able to tell you what voter assist terminals they use and also may offer to help you understand better how to use them before the election. Um, But a voter assist terminal is a device, very often something that looks like an iPad, it's a screen-based device that um, can help you review and fill out your ballot in multiple ways. So if you're a person with visual impairments, it can potentially read you your ballot. You can potentially um, indicate what you want to mark without having to be able to see your ballot. Uh, It can also assist you, like I said, with um, preventing spoiling your ballot. So for example, if you're voting on um, a a position where there's only one candidate allowed to vote for, it won't allow you to vote for two. If you're voting in a primary and you have to vote on one side or other of the ballot in the primary, it can stop you from accidentally spoiling your ballot by voting across party lines. Um, But these technologies are available to everyone. They are ADA accommodations. So every polling place should have a voter assist terminal. It should be on, it should be in use. Ideally, um, poll workers would offer people a use of the voter assist terminal without having to be asked or without having to um, see a visibly apparent disability. Um, And this is an area that we really want to get the word out about because a lot of folks don't understand that there are these devices and a lot of poll workers aren't prepared to help folks with them. I'll be quite honest. I had no idea they existed. No, you have to be at the poll to use this device. Yes, I believe in some municipalities, they make them available to essentially do like absentee voting before the fact. 
but in Michigan, we don't really have early voting. So it's not, your vote wouldn't be tabulated at that time. Um, but yes, there, there are four polling places for people who'd like to vote in person, which a lot of people prefer for various reasons. Um, one of which I hear a lot from folks with disabilities, especially um, apparent disabilities, is just getting out there and being visible. Exactly. You know, if, if you're at the polling place voting, then people are seeing that people with disabilities vote and participate in their communities. In case it wasn't mentioned, is there an opportunity um, for someone with a disability, if they know they're going to the polling place and they know that they would like to utilize this device, can they request access to use it um, ahead of time to ensure that they have access to the the device um, when they should arrive? To, to reach out to their clerks to request that. Um, and I think a lot of clerks would would be happy to accommodate that. Um, if it becomes an issue where you request it and it's not possible, we always encourage people to reach out to DRM and we can potentially smooth the path on that. But I think it, it would be great for clerks to actually hear from people with disabilities before elections on these issues. Um, yeah. It's really hard to fix things day of, but right. if, if we're on their minds, if we're giving them calls and asking about the voter assist terminal and asking about our polling places, then we're we're part of the community. We're visible. So I guess there isn't a process, but the process could potentially be calling ahead and asking. I because yeah, because voting is so municipality specific on a practical level. Um, I, I would definitely encourage people to contact their clerk. Um, okay to get information about the voter assist terminal they'd be using and, and access to it. Okay. And I think it's important for people to realize it's not a matter of asking for a special favor. You're exercising a right and that's their job. The person you're right. calling, that's their job to make those accommodations for you. So it's not a matter of not wanting someone else to go out of their way. Uh, that's right. it's your right. It's their responsibility. And it gets them out of, you know, 15, 20 minutes of having to listen to people accuse them of stealing elections and all of the other things that come with working in a municipal clerk's office now. So I'm sure yeah. they'd be happy to do something proactive and positive. So question, how would this legislation, what would the net effect be? Would it tend to suppress the amount of votes or would it encourage more votes? We're talking or about the promote the vote. Promote the vote 2022. I mean, my understanding is that it would mostly codify um either existing accommodations or accommodations that exist in other states like early voting um, that have been shown to correlate with increased turnout. So the numbers suggest that it would. um, And like Brett said, we want everyone to vote. So I looked at this and it seems like most of the things they're proposing are things we've done in the past. They just want to, like you said, make it a permanent rather than a pandemic. Yeah, I think a lot of this is, is Um, You know, we discussed earlier the difference between a constitutional amendment and a law, right? I think a lot of this is about trying to take things from the position of being in the law where they can be changed by the legislature to um, constitutional rights that are much harder to to take back. The provisions of the last one, my right to vote, are in many ways very similar to the provisions of Promote the Vote 2022. With a few differences, but for the most part, uh, I'll just read through these quickly, requires two weeks of in-person absentee voting, requires at least one drop-off box for absentee voting for every 15,000 registered voters. That's very very similar to promote the vote. Uh, Allows voters to receive absentee ballot applications without requesting them. So that goes to 
registered voter is not just to the general population. It goes to the people who are registered voters. Requires the postage of absentee applications and ballots to be prepaid. Allows voters to verify identity with their photo ID or signatures, but it says allows. It doesn't require. Uh, Allows officials to prepare for counting absentee ballots within a seven-day period before the election. And I think a lot of them across the country were counted after the election, Mm -hmm. which gave this big surprise of these votes coming in that were not following the trend because they were all cast ahead of time, but they're counted after the fact. Bar lawmakers from imposing an undue burden on the right to vote. Now, you could probably drive a truck through that one. In terms of what might be an undue burden, but, it seems um, more like a nice idea than an actual directive. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's it's a leverage area where somebody could contest something that might be imposing a burden. It also bans laws that restrict contributions to fund elections, so it it gets rid of the restrictions about not having this in a church or some other organization that wants to donate the space. It prohibits requirements of voter ID for absentee voting or social security numbers to register to vote. And again, for people that are fearful, but they're operating under fear rather than fact in terms of voter fraud, that would be a problem because they think maybe having a proving who you are is an important thing to do, uh, unless the net effect of that is actually to repress voting. It also requires legislature to fund elections. I, I always thought they had to. That I didn't know why they had to put this in here, but requires the legislature to fund elections. Isn't that part of state government, Brett? Well, th- that's a great question because there's um, federal funds that come to the state through the Help America Vote Act that is used to, again, to help fund elections. Um, there was an initiative, I don't know if it passed even all necessarily, but it would require act of the legislature to appropriate funds specifically for that act uh, to help fund elections. And if the legislature did not um, appropriate those funds, it would go back to the federal government. So I, I'm, and again, I'm always speculating because I wasn't the, the drafter of this. I'm always speculating that it basically would say if the funds come to Michigan, then they, they have to be used to, to, to fund the elections. They can't just let it set and send it back. Yeah, sending money back is kind of a sad thing to do. It's a sad thing to do, and it's not generally a wise thing to do in the world of publicly funded activities. You send money back, that's saying you don't need it. And it's also concerning because when we talk to um, municipal clerks and their staff about accessibility issues and barriers, funding is their biggest issue. You know, it's, it's easy to say, yes, we want our spaces to be accessible, but making sure that you have the right number of parking spaces and the doors are the right width and you have the right, um, you know, accommodations for folks is not free and they're obligated to do those things. So when we take money away, that makes it harder and puts more burden on individual taxpayers um, to to get those accommodations done. Actually, promote the vote is uh, something with people want to back, they want to sign that petition if they want to increase access and promote the vote, basically have more people voting. My right to vote, the last one we're talking about here, expands and codifies things in the Constitution, as does promote the vote. And if they're concerned about fraud, if they're concerned about making sure that at all costs that the vote is more secure, they want to get rid of those 50 fraudulent votes, 
um, then maybe secure my vote would be the one they want to sign. My concern was that that people are going to hear bad things about the initiatives and not vote for any of these, where they might want to promote the vote, but they don't want to secure the vote because the secure my vote would tend to decrease the number of voters, where promote the vote would tend to increase the number of voters, possibly. And my right to vote would expand a little bit further in terms of protections and, and accessibility for voting. Are there any other I questions? I think what's most important in making those decisions is just really digging into um, the cause and effect of, of those proposals. And that's an individual right. thing. Obviously, everybody has their own set of priorities and not my job to tell people how to vote, just to encourage them to vote. Um, but yeah, digging into the broader ramifications beyond what sounds good to you, you know, it's like I said, a lot of people are acting in good faith, even if they're potentially sure. promoting things that are going to reduce the number of voters. They don't necessarily understand that actual real human beings will be negatively affected. So I, I just really encourage people to dig into this. Um, there have been some good explainers. Bridge Magazine did an explainer where they went through all of the current um, ballot proposals in the petition phase and talked about the pros and cons. Um, I, yeah, we just really want people to make an informed decision, vote your heart, vote the issues that matter to you. Um, but know, know what the potential ramifications of your vote will be. I thank you very much. All of you for participating today. Anna, thank you. Rachel, thank you. And Brett, as always, I thank you very much. Well, I greatly thank appreciate you. the opportunity, Steve. Um, and, and please feel free to share the DD council's contact information. Uh, should people um, have any questions regarding intellectual and developmental disabilities and their rights and advocacy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Take care now. Bye-bye. Thanks everyone. Hi, and welcome to the, the Chat Cafe portion of our podcast. I am your host, Carrie, and I'm with my co-host, Steve. That conversation had quite a bit of information that... Kind of gets you upset, doesn't it? Yeah, it really it does. It, it, and also frustrated because it's like, I don't even know how to go about stopping this. And it's just it's just very frustrating in that regards it's the know. frustrating thing just as a recap is this and i think the people we interviewed did a very good job of telling us what the, the whole deal is yes first of all today it seems like before elections everybody has a petition to sign of some kind there's a lot of that goes around in michigan there's three of them that involve voting changes right now. one of them is a an amendment two of them are amendments of the michigan constitution which has a little different rule for having that enacted and one of them was a proposal to have some laws enacted which would go through the legislature now what's tough about this is that the secure the vote act for michigan which is legislative only requires eight percent of the voters that were in the last... percent of the votes cast. In the last gubernatorial election. Right. Which means 340,047. Signatures. Signatures. Validated signatures. That goes directly to the legislature. And they can just pass it into they law. They can say, done. And if they pass it into law with the majority, which the Republican Party has a majority, that would be veto-proof. In other words, the governor could not veto the law which is normally a, one of those 
checks and balances. Exactly. Okay? Now, that basically says that 8% can make the decision for the other 92%. Right. Which does not seem in Democratic? Any, I don't know that that sounds fair, democratic, just, whatever. Exactly. It sounds... And Michigan's not the only state that has that. I don't know all the rest of them, but they have this little weird quirk in there. Now, the other two initiatives called Promote the Vote and My Right to Vote, which is MI for Michigan, mm -hmm. are actually constitutional amendments. So that becomes a constitutional issue, not just a law that was passed. Those require 10% of the voters in the last gubernatorial election. Hmm. So in other words, still 90% are kind of disenfranchised, but the bar is higher for that to make it a constitutional amendment. The current rulers in the legislative process would like secure the vote. They are certainly not going to pass off on promote the vote or my right to vote. They would just let it set. And then it would show up on the ballot next time around, and, and the the whole state gets to vote on it. So, in other words, the eight percent rule allows the legislative process that is in control, the legislative party in control, to let pass. They can pass into law what they'd like to have, which mm -hmm. is secure quickly. the vote quickly, quickly without and veto proof. Well, they can't ignore my right to vote or promote the vote if they get valid 10% of the signatures, which is due in by July 11th. Well, they can ignore it, but it's going to come up on the ballot. If they ignore it, it shows up on the okay. ballot. Then okay. the rest of the, the population gets to vote on it, which sounds more fair because you're going to have millions of people involved in it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we do have an issue here. And the big issue with secure the vote is, as I see it and many other people see it, is it requires a picture ID, which most people think, well, what the heck's wrong with that? Um, it has more we profound have, implications. We have all, all have picture IDs. Well, and I've always had to show a picture. I never thought yeah. much about it because yeah. I just whip my wallet out of my back pocket and I show it to them and I get my ballot. Okay. Right. right. Uh, our son is in a wheelchair. He's a quadriplegic. He cannot, without the help of someone else, get his ID because it's in a little fanny pack inside his backpack in the back of the wheelchair. Right. He physically cannot access that. Himself. Right. Plus, there's some restrictions on who can help somebody vote with the secure the vote. Right. So you just can't have a stranger do it. A poll worker cannot go through his personal belongings. You'd have to have someone else come with him. And that creates a lot of problems, too. Absolutely. Because what if those lines? How long are we standing there? Right. And for transportation, you know, secure the vote requires you show the voter ID or you can sign something attesting to the fact that you are who you are. But within six days, you've got to come six. back with the voter ID and present it physically to have your vote count. Now, most people that just jump in a car and run off to the grocery store have all kinds of freedom of movement. Someone in a wheelchair, and we have thousands and thousands of people in wheelchairs that are eligible voters in the state, don't cannot, have that flexibility. Right, you got to right. call Uber or get someone else to drive you. Or the dial a ride, and secure the vote will not let somebody else take that person's vote and turn it in if they have a right. If we had an absentee ballot at our house, I could not take yours and drop it you, in the drop box. Even though we're married, you cannot take mine. So, right. I mean, it, 
it's crazy. They're trying to avoid harvesting of votes, which is where some somebody can gather the votes of 10 or 12 people or people in a nursing home, which are also affected by this. Right? They cannot have someone take those votes to the polling place because that's considered harvesting. The person in the walker, the elderly person, has to go there themselves and pass it Put in. Put it in the... Or, or ballot box. could mail it if they did manage to get a mail-in ballot, but it's going to be much, much more difficult to do that. So it does have a profound effect on the disability community, the aged community, and the other communities of color and some other minorities that have a difficulty in terms of transportation. Another thing that, that this one has is oftentimes the polling places at a church. Secure the Vote says that no private financing can go into the election. Now, you'd say, well, sure. I mean, why should some rich person influence the vote by having by making contributions to the vote, financial contributions? It's more like in kind. It's like a church says, okay, we have a good location here. You can use the church as a polling place. Mm-hmm. That's not allowed under Secure the Vote because they're not charging the fair rate. They're just donating the space. You can't donate the space anymore under Secure the Vote. You've got to find another place, which might not be as handicapped accessible as most churches are, too. Right. Or centrally located. Or centrally located. And it might mean that the, the place that individuals have voted for the last God only knows how many right. years, they go there on Election Day, and, and guess what? It's not It's not there. there because they couldn't have it there because... It was ruled against too for secure the vote because right. they couldn't use private financing. A lot of stuff. So there's a lot of restrictions, and you know sometimes these poll workers do not get the proper training because there's a lot of changes. Mm-hmm. And as the, we learned from that quote from uh, KUT Public Radio in Texas, where over twenty thousand votes in the state of Texas in their primary were thrown out, disqualified. Right. In one county alone, where the previous election they had thrown out in the hundreds, they were into the thousands, tens of thousands of votes that were disqualified because of these same kind of restrictions that they have in the Michigan Secure the Vote initiative. Well, we can uh, certainly, if you have a chance to sign an initiative, the only ones out there right now are for either Promote the Vote or My Right to Vote because those have until July 11th. Secure the Vote had to have their 340,000 in by June 1st. Do we know if they did? They did not turn them in. However, as Brett tells us, they can also, the legislature can say, well, we're going to count them anyway. They can give them a pass on that and count those votes at the last minute and have them secured. But they're going to go through a scrutiny process to make sure that they were signed properly because we've had a little problem in the state of Michigan and recently in terms of signatures on, on ballot proposals and, and petitions for uh, people running for office. Okay. So it's a problem. And the, the net result, as I asked our panelists, was uh, would the net results of Secure the Vote uh, likely increase the number of people voting or decrease the number of people voting? Well, Texas shows us overwhelmingly. I mean, hundreds of percentages higher that were disqualified because of the same type of restrictions. Because in all these other states that are passing these secure the vote type of legislation, it looks almost identical from one state to the next. The rules are almost identical. The laws they're passing are very, very similar. And the net effect is to suppress the number of people voting. 
so, that are actually able to show up. That are actually able to show up. And, you know, I mean, we have a son in a wheelchair. We've been around people with disability for quite some time. When you make things difficult, they get pretty tough. They'll go out and do what they have to do. They, they do things that most of us find easy, but they do it because it's the right thing. Yeah. But you get to the point where you make it just too darn difficult, they're more likely to say, ah, it's only my vote, so I'm not going to bother yeah, with it. Yeah, I'm not even going to bother. It's too hard. It's too hard. It's too hard. I can't. I can't do it, it all. Obviously, it, it that worked in Texas. It's it suppressed the number of people voting. Mm. So that is the issue involved here. That is the passion that we have for this. That it should be that every registered voter has an equal opportunity to vote, and don't make it harder, because. The amount of fraud in Michigan and across the country, it's been verified over and over again. It was minuscule. I love how one of our panelists described, this is a solution in search of a problem. Right. But the net effect will be to disenfranchise hundreds of thousands of American voters across this country. Right. Well, thank you for finding these people and rounding this up and having such a wonderful discussion. I hope it has some effect on the outcome thank you much y'all appreciate you listening to us please contact us at contact at nlawkey.com contact at nlawki.com thank you much bye bye steve and carrie have been your hosts my name is alex and i'm the producer of nlawkey Daniela handles all of our social media and general communications, and Holly is our website guru and mistress of the blog. Thanks for tuning into our podcast, and please like, follow, subscribe, and share our podcast to help us grow. You're the best. This has been a production of Envision Media Group, LLC.